In his name I pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm Brother Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you here uh, at Wyatt. I want to make you aware of something that you can pray for uh, this week. Uh, is Children's Church Camp. Uh, a group of our children will be going to camp. Um, I'll be speaking at that uh, because I'm cheap and we like to keep the budget for camp low. And so uh, we uh, we partner with the church in Keltis, uh, First Baptist Keltis in Tech, Lufkin, Texas, and uh, they supply the speakers some year and some year it's us. And so I'll be speaking this year. So please, please pray uh, for me uh, as I finish preparing those messages this week. Um, a couple of other things to be aware of. Um, we're still in need of some scholarships. Uh, so if you look in the uh, connection card of the bulletin, you'll see there that uh, a full scholarship, uh, which is minus the deposit that the families have already paid, uh, is $150. A half scholarship, of course, is 75 Or you can just kind of give uh, an offering just to help knock, uh, knock off some of that price as well. So if you uh, could give an offering uh, today, uh, to give uh, the scholarships to those kids, that would be awesome. We, we definitely do need some more scholarships to give out. Um, and then the other thing is, if you're going to camp or your child is going to camp, immediately following the service, uh, there's going to be a, uh, a meeting uh, in the choir room or the membership matters room? In the choir room, okay? So in the choir room. So if you're going to camp, uh, you need to go to the choir room immediately after the service. And that's very important. There's some paperwork that needs to be filled out, and so you're not having to hurry around this week or come up to the church in the week. It'd be great to come uh, to that meeting and fill out that paperwork. Thank you. So this morning, really the text is mainly about unbelief. About unbelief. Christ has been calling in chapter 12, he's been calling the people to belief. In uh, the preceding verses to this, he has said, hey, as long as you have the light, and you just have the light for a little longer, uh, right, because he's about to go to the cross and then be resurrected and then to leave. While you have the light, believe. So he's urging these people, believe, believe, believe in me. And so that's where we have, uh, that's where we pick up in verse 36. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, uh, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in Me 
may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not, uh, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So what I want us to look at is three aspects of unbelief. Three aspects of unbelief. The first thing I want us to notice is the providence of unbelief. So after Jesus encourages and, 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 and in many ways pleads with the people, believe, believe in Me, believe in the light while you have the light. It says that they didn't believe. It says in verse 37, though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So He, he kind of just, for a moment, He withdraws from the crowd and, and we see Him kind of thinking through, processing their unbelief. What do you do? What do you do with the unbelief, the continued unbelief of the Jews? How does rampant unbelief of most of the Jews speak to the successfulness of the Savior? That's the big question of this text. That's the big question that these first few verses are trying to answer. I mean, back in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we got from the very get-go this, this idea that Christ is going to win. That the light is going to overcome the darkness. But in this moment, there's so much unbelief. There's so many people that are rejecting what is right before their eyes. The signs and the words of Jesus Christ. So is Christ failing? Christ failing in fulfilling that verse that says that light will overcome. Is He failing in His mission of redemption? And to answer this question, we're taken, Jesus begins to talk about the ministry of Isaiah. Jesus paraphrases first Isaiah 53.10 which says, Lord, who has believed what He heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he paraphrases Isaiah 6.10, which reads, Make the heart of His people dull and their ears heavy and blind their hearts lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah was a preacher that was called to faithfully preach to a people that were not going to listen. How would you like that job? Isaiah, you need to go proclaim my beautiful, excellent, amazing truths to a people that are blind and dumb to them. To people that aren't going to respond. So we would ask ourselves, Is was Isaiah successful? 
Of course he was successful. He was a faithful messenger of God. What he did, he went and he communicated to the people because his job was to give the message to them. Everything else was in God's hand. It was all according to, to plan. And, and John, back in John chapter 1, when it says that, that the light is going to overcome, that the darkness is not going to overcome the light, that the light that Christ is going to win, it also says from the get-go, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. So from the, from the get-go, from chapter 1, we both have a promise of victory and a promise that people are going to reject Christ. Especially His own people. And I admit that this verse is a bit of a theological minefield, right? In that controversial subject of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And the idea of is how much does God intervene in the will of man? And that's a it's a hot debate, right? And and in our church we have people that, that hold different views on that. And that's fine, right? There's some extremes that if you believe we need to have a conversation about, right? Like uh if you believe so much, if you just look at the sovereignty of God and that's all you look at and and you believe that Man, God does what He wants to. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to believe. I don't have to, I don't have to share the gospel with people. I don't have to live a righteous life because it's all God. It's, you can't thwart His plan, so you do what you want. That's fatalism and that's, that's hypercapitalism and that's, that's something that has no business in the life and the heart and the belief of a Christian. But on the other hand, you have others that, that would, would, would deny and, and minimize the sovereignty of God that would say it's all about man. That would say man really isn't all that bad. They're really not all that. They're, they're good. They can totally respond to God without even God helping them. Or, or, or to deny. Many even go so far as to not deny that God knows the future. Now if you hold those extreme positions, we need to have a talk about that because I believe that is outside of the Scriptures. But there are many in our church that hold varying degrees in between that those positions that are out of orthodoxy. But I don't want us to get lost in the weeds of theological debate this morning. I want us instead to speak of what the purpose of this text is about and what is undeniable in these verses. One thing I want us to notice is that unbelief is not an evidence of Christ's failure, but is in itself, but is itself part of God's plan. We see here that the, the Savior's not shocked. Jesus is not withdrawing from the crowd and going, Oh no! Man, I've done my best signs. I'm raising the dead. I'm, I'm giving my best teachings. I'm, I'm doing all that I'm supposed to do here. And there's a lot of people that aren't believing. I don't. He's wringing his hands going, I don't know what I'm going to do. We don't see this. We see a, a Christ who is fully convinced and, and, and just fully secure in, in what's happening. And the fact that, that our unbelief, that man's unbelief does not shake God. He does not 
He does not need our affirmations to be God. Have you ever just felt rejection, the sting of rejection? I know I have. Lots of times in my life. Right? Like your, your acting ability doesn't quite step up to the, the main lead, so like you're the tree in the background. Or your ability and in, in, in athletic ability, this one I know all too well, does not earn you the starting spot. You're riding the pine. When you get the list of starters, you're on the pine. Or that, that note that you send in grade school, and she checks no instead of yes. You realize that the sum of who you are just isn't enough for her or him. And there's just that embarrassment of I'm not enough. I, I can't believe I've been rejected. Not so with Christ. Christ is not, Christ is not insecure when He is rejected. Because he, he is lacking in nothing. He doesn't need man's affirmation. He doesn't need man's approval. He doesn't even need our belief. Unbelief, unbelievers are part of God's sovereign plan. There's no way around it. If, if God is all-powerful and yet not all men are saved, it must be in God's will that not everyone is saved. That there are those who reject Him. And so unbelief does not throw a wrench in the, in the cogs of God's plan. Unbelief is part of God's plan. I mean, we see here uh, in this unbelief of the Jews, what happens? In the aftermath of Christ's death and resurrection, what happens? The, the Jews refuse to believe, and so what happens? The Gospel goes out to the Gentiles. That's, that's in and of itself a way in which unbelief was just working part of God's plan to, to get it out to the rest of the world. And so we need not be shocked when people do not believe. God is not shocked when people do not believe, but it is part of His plan. We can also know that when the Scriptures speak of God's hardening people, it does not speak of a people that are seeking Him, but of people who have already turned from Him. It's not as if all these people are running to Christ. It's not as all these people are, hey, we want to believe in you, we want to believe in you, and then Christ slams the door of grace in their face and says, no, that's not what's happening here. God's work of hardening the unbeliever is not like the active work He works in the heart of the believer. Take, for instance, the, the textbook instance of the hardening of the heart. Of God hardening someone's heart, we we go back to Pharaoh, right? In the in in, in the book of Exodus, when all of these uh, plagues are hitting Egypt, and 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 Moses keeps going back and asking Pharaoh, "Let my people go," and he keeps saying no. What does it keep saying time and time again? It talks about, "Hey, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart." He's and, it, and time and time again it says, "God hardened Pharaoh's heart," and yet. It also says in Exodus 8.15, 8.32, and 9.34, it, re- it words it this way, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So yes, God's, God hardens, but Pharaoh is not some programmed robot. Pharaoh is a man that is more than willing to go against God. We also see this in Romans 1 after uh, talking about the sinful condition of man. Paul writes this in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged uh, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creature who is blessed forever. Amen. God doesn't reach into the reprobate's heart and rewire it for evil. Sin's already done that, folks. God simply says, you want to pursue evil instead of me? Go ahead. All God has to do is remove His restraining hand, and any and all of us would, would tumble down into the deepest, darkest depths of our depravity. One of my favorite sermons of all time is a very famous sermon preached decades ago by a missionary named Paris Reedhead. And if you've never heard it, you need to look it up. Ten Shekels in a Shirt is the name of the sermon. And in it, he's talking about like his view, his view of the heathen, his view of the people in Africa that he was going to preach the Gospel to. And he says, if you would have asked me about the people in Africa that I was going to preach the gospel before I went, I would have said, these are poor people that, man, they just don't know. They don't know. They don't know that there's a God that loves them. They don't, you know, they, they, they're living these sinful lives, but they don't want to be living these sinful lives. He says, that's, that's my view before I got on the field. And this is his view after he got on the field. He says, and when I went to Africa, I discovered that they weren't poor, ignorant, little heathen running around in the woods looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven, but they were monsters of iniquity. They were living in utter, utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserved it because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and in light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth that they knew. This, this is the natural condition of man. God, God does not have to rewire a person's heart in unbelief. It's already heading in that direction. All God has to do is get out of the way and they will gladly, gladly run straight into a Christless eternity in hell. And then also, the fact that unbelief has been ordained does not, in any shape, way, or form, remove the responsibility of men to believe and to call others to believe. Let me, let me say that again because I want you to hear me. The fact that unbelief has been ordained does not in any shape, way, or form remove the responsibility of men to believe and to call others to believe. 
that Jesus is saying that unbelief is part of the plan and if people's hearts are being hardened, then does it matter what we do? Of course it matters what we do. Right before this text, the very preceding verse is a verse where Jesus is imploring people to believe. Verse 36, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The very next verse after this section, Jesus says in verse 44, Whoever believes in Me, believes in not, not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And Jesus says in, in verse 42 and 43, talks about, and really, there's more people that are believing than you might see. Because there were people that were beginning to believe or believing that were scared. They were scared to come out in front of people and, and say it because it says that they feared man instead of God. Whatever verses 34 through 43 mean, they certainly do not remove the responsibility to believe and to call people to believe. What God is doing in the heart of any person as it relates to belief or unbelief is God's business. Our business is to believe the Gospel and to call and to plead with other people to respond to it. The main, the main point, the main point of these, these first verses in this text is for Jesus to say, listen, there's a lot of unbelief running around here, but no, my plan of redemption is right on schedule. And we know that it was just the beginning, right? just the beginning of people all over the world believing next we see the folly of unbelief it says in verse 44 and jesus cried out and said whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me i've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So we see here that Jesus had kind of went to the side, kind of thought about this unbelief going on in, in, in Isaiah's ministry and is going on in his and how it's part of God's plan and, and there's no frustration there. And then he comes back out. And what, what we have here is really that final, if you will, pep talk. This is the last just public declaration that Christ is going to make, at least in the Gospel of John, this, this public declaration that Christ is going to make before it goes straight to the cross. And it says here that Jesus cried out. Right? Like, so there's passion in these words. There's, 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 man, there's an urging in these words words and what he says is whoever believes in me believes not in not in me but in him who sent me now it's, it's hard for us to understand just how important it was for christ to to show his union with the father i mean because in the jewish culture it was father god he's the one that gave the commandments he's the one that that had done everything for them, and it was it was vital 
that Jesus acknowledge and, and, and proclaim that I am His Son. And if you've seen Me, you've seen Him. That's how unified He says He is with the Father. And what He's, what he's saying here, He's saying, listen to Me. What's happening here and, and what I'm offering to you, it does not rely on flesh alone. That yes, I'm, I'm here before you. I am flesh and bone. But there's a union that I have with the Father. And that, that is why you can believe. That is why you can truly know that I will save you. Because I come from God. He says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He's, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not some man playing a game. Okay? He's not like Muhammad or, he's, or, or Buddha who is a man trying to, to play a game. He is, yes, a man, but he is a divine man. He is also fully God. And this is what it comes down to. If there's a God, and this is His Son, you have no other options at that point. Right? Like if there is a God, and this is His Son, you have to bend the knee. You have to bend the knee. It all rests on that. His union with the Father. You have to bend the knee and call Him Lord or you will have horrible, horrible consequences. We also see here that, that belief in Christ, it changes everything. Verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. Christ came to transform us. He came so that we would no longer be people that walked in the darkness and, and, and received the horrors and the dangers and the pitfalls of the darkness, but be people that walk in the light of His joy. And this was a running theme with John. The, the disciple John, he loved to speak in terms of light. In his letter, First John 1, 5 and 7, this is what he says. It's, it's very similar to these words here by Jesus. It says, this is the message we have heard from Him. So, and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Folks, God, Christ did not die on the cross for us to remain in darkness. And some of us, man, we, we struggle, right? We're dancing a dance between the darkness and the light. Sunday we, we come to church and hey, I'm, I'm in the light. But then during the week, man, we're out there and, and we're living as pe joyless people that don't have the Gospel or... People that, that never really think about the love and, and, and aren't seeking their identity in the love of Christ. Just continue to, to walk in the world as, in many ways, living our lives as atheists as if the Gospel doesn't exist. 
That's not why you were saved. You were saved to walk in the light. You were saved to, to know the light of Christ and to dwell and to stay in the light of, the, of Christ, not in darkness. I love what it says in 1 John. That if we do that, we have fellowship with one another. So we, we live a more, when we're walking in the light of Christ, we have a more fulfilled life with, with each other, with our marriage and, and with our kids and with our friends and with our co-workers that there's just better fellowship but then also that the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from all sin we can know that that we're cleansed by christ walk walk in the light and not in darkness you weren't saved to keep walking in darkness or to dance that dance between light and darkness stay in the light stay in the light and lastly, we see the judgment of unbelief. The judgment of unbelief. Verse 47, If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. While we want to look at the judgment of, belief, of unbelief, here Jesus wants to make it perfectly clear that His mission, His mission in His first coming his mission is not judgment. His mission is salvation. If, if, if Christ had came to judge, it wouldn't have been Him that was suffering. Okay? It would have been everyone else. He would have brought judgment and, and judged the world and judged mankind for, for their sin. It would have looked very different. Probably looked more like the second coming of Christ. But he says, and I came to save the world. Christian, unbeliever, what, what does that mean to you? Think about that. That he came not to judge you, but to save you, to bring you out of judgment. How can you, what, what can he do? What else could he do? What can he do? Besides what He's done coming to earth and to live that perfect life on your behalf and to die the death that you deserve, what more could He possibly do to, to show you, hey, I'm here to save you, not to harm you? Yet, we see here that there will be judgment for those who reject Him. It says in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus has essentially been begging the crowd to believe. Believe while you have the light. Believe in me because I come from the Father. He's, he's in every way done exactly what the Father wanted him to do. And, and it says here that he's spoken every word. Not a word has come out of his mouth and what the Father has told him to do. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I've ever put together a paragraph that was 100% what the Father would want me to say. I try. Don't know if I've ever succeeded. 
but yet 100% of the words that proceeded from the mouth of Christ were those from the Father, were fully submitted to the authority of the Father. And Jesus says, that's what's going to judge you. Whether or not you you hear the gospel of what I've done for you, of what I'm offering for you, if you refuse me, if you refuse that salvation that I'm offering, then you will be judged by those words, by, by your rejection of those words. And so I encourage you as Christ encourages you that if you don't if you haven't believed if you haven't believed don't don't say well God God doesn't want me to believe apparently that, that's not it's your responsibility that 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 Christ says if you come to me I will cast you out so come flee to Christ and he will not cast you out he will receive you You've got to run to Him. Because your opportunity will not last forever. And one day all those doors that would shut, it may be as it may be the very last moment of your life that you really do feel that drawing of God. Could be. What are you going to do with it? Run to Christ. That's what you should do with it. And Christian, please live the life of Jesus and Isaiah and be people that are faithful. Despite what's happening around you, despite what God chooses to do with your life, be faithful. Believe. Call other people to belief. That's our calling. Faithful. I'm going to ask you to please stand as our musicians come. I hope that you will respond to the Word of God this morning. Let's pray. Dearly Father God, I thank You that You are sovereign. I thank You that You are in control. And, and, and not frustrated, but You are working Your plan out. But God, I, I pray that as Jesus pleads with people to believe, God, God, I pray that if there's anyone here, they will flee to You. They will run to You before it's too late. And God, help us to be faithful. Be the people that You've called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amazing.